Hi, welcome back to my podcast, All About History. I'm glad you could join me today and listen in. You can listen on any platform, Spotify, Audible, Apple Podcasts, and even Anchor. Um, This week is a little bit different than past weeks. Um, Today we'll be talking about sweatshops, tenements, and child labor in the Industrial Revolution age um, in the 18 and 1900s. Thank you for all the support. Now let's get on our way and take a walk through what could be one of the most overlooked horrible historical events. First, to start off with a little background context, during the 18 and 1900s, millions of people flocked to the U.S. for many different reasons. Some came seeking personal freedom or even relief from political and religious persecution, and others came thinking that there would always be enough food to eat and the streets were quote-unquote paved with gold. There are many different reasons and circumstances. Nearly 12 million immigrants arrived in the United States between 1870 and 1900s, and they weren't just from one place. All types of people immigrated to the U.S., but the majority of immigrants came from Northern and Western Europe, the United Kingdom, Ireland, and Scandinavia. However, new immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe were quickly becoming one of America's most powerful forces, powerful as in the biggest quantities or the most amount from that group. After immigrants made it to America, rarely did they have any money left. They came into the country with absolutely nothing, looking for a better life that included better living conditions and a better paying job. Unfortunately, a lot of newcomers to America were strongly mistaken. Not only was working bad, which we'll get into later, but living conditions were not up to par. They sometimes were almost unlivable. America was thought to have freedom from persecutors and the freedom to live the way you want, but instead, immigrants were forced into tiny living spaces with too many people and not enough resources. Jacob Rise, a social reformer and journalist who was always prepared to speak out about the horrors of the housing, education, and poverty issues, stated a lot of things, but one of his most famously spoken quotes was, the slum is the measure of civilization. That is, quote, so important because once Americans truly learn the truth about the slums, people realized civilization wasn't as okay as they thought. The measure of the slum was way lower than many Americans even knew. Many Americans didn't know the horrible living conditions of these newcomers to America. The shocking places immigrants had to live were called tenements. Tenements were small, low-rise apartment complexes with less than a foot between each unit. There was no light or ventilation in many tenements. There's also no safety for these people who are forced to live in such conditions. There was usually one toilet per 20 people and 12 adults had to sleep in 13-foot-wide rooms. Tenements were also hotbeds of vermin and disease and were frequently swept by cholera, typhus, and tuberculosis. With so many people living in such close proximity, with poor ventilation, sickness and disease traveled fast and death was right behind it. So today we have a little surprise guest. Um, She lived in a tenement when she was just a little girl after her and her family escaped from the Irish potato famine. Her name is Flannery O'Connor and is here to educate us a little more about the horrors she had to endure. Hello, so happy I could join you today. This is a very special opportunity. People need to truly see how we lived and how we survived. So thank you for inviting me here today. Of course, we're so glad you can join us. So first, just to start us off, where did you live when you came to America? I and my family came through Ellis Island, actually, when we first arrived. I had changed my first name to Flannery, and we settled in New York. When we came, we had no money, and we had to use all of it to actually get to America. So when you first arrived here, you didn't know anyone? What was your first impressions of the United States, and where did you stay? 
Yes, so when we arrived, we didn't have any family members we could stay with or friends that we even knew. We had met a few other Irish families on the journey to America, but they didn't know anyone either. Personally, being a little girl, my first impression was just amazement, but I was kind of also confused. The first place we settled was a tenement on the Lower East Side. It was rough around the edges, and I heard stories of freedom and no hunger or poverty, but when I arrived that first night, we didn't get dinner or food. I was confused why we had made the journey. I didn't even get a bed. I got a blanket on the floor that I had to share with my brother. It smelled of sewer and body odor everywhere you went. The bedrooms were too cramped, and it was almost impossible to breathe. And don't get me even started about where we used the bathroom. <laughs> wow, um, it sounds like the first impressions were just not as good as we all hoped. But I think most Americans had no idea how horrible immigrants immigrants had it when coming to the United States. So thank you for that information. Stay put and let me talk about some facts and I'll be back with more questions. So in New York City, more than 80,000 tenements had been constructed by 1900s. They accommodated 2.3 million people, accounting for about two-thirds of the city's overall population of 3.4 million. Tenements were usually the only places new immigrants could even afford. Even though the people already living in these crowded cities would move out, it would just be countered by more people flooding in. So even though more people would flood out, immigrants kept coming to the United States, and they were not stopping the spread to America. So since immigrants weren't stopping the spread, let's talk a little more about immigrants and the jobs they had and how their work conditions were. Because of all the new people who came to America, jobs became very important, even more important than they had before. Low-skilled newcomers supplied labor for industrialization, which in the industrial age and the industrial revolution was uber important. The people who managed factories and other low-skilled kinds of jobs figured they really didn't have to pay the workers, especially immigrants, as much. So during the Industrial Revolution, wages for common laborers were exceedingly low. Men were paid a dollar to a dollar and fifty per hour, while women were paid less and children even paid worse than that. It was difficult to make a living and much more difficult or even impossible to sustain a family. Imagine working all day and only getting paid one dollar an hour how is it even possible to sustain a family well it isn't why was the pay so low well sweatshops started in the 1850s and sweatshops were established because it's a simple method for businesses to make money by lowering manufacturing costs so the more you the less you paid a worker, the more money the factory was making. So as a result, low-cost manufacturing emerges. Another result is the poor treatment of the workers. Since we're on the subject of working, Flannery, tell me more about your parents' work. Well, my parents were gone most of the time, and when I got old enough, I started going with. But my dad worked in the coal mine. Every night he would come home so dirty you could barely tell what his face looked like, and all night it sounded like he was coughing up a lung. He told me stories of people being beaten for taking breaks and others dying from loss of oxygen because of the coal in their lungs. Wow, that is incredibly intriguing to hear about. I do know many workers spent their days tending to a machine in a huge, crowded, noisy, smelly, dark room, and others worked in perilous jobs such as coal mines, like your father, steel mills, railways, slaughterhouses, and other hazardous, dangerous industries and the majority were underpaid. The average workday was 12 hours or more, six days a week. And like we said before, a dollar an hour, 12 hours a day, that's not enough. 
Um, So when working in a sweatshop, not only was your pay low, but so was your safety. Lost body parts due to the machines and sometimes even loss of hearing was very common. Even, Even death was a somewhat common problem. There were no safety codes, especially regarding fire regulations. A little side event um, that I'd that had happened, and I'm going to explain, was the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire. Uh, the Triangle Shirtwaist Company factory in New York City burnt down on March 25, 1911, killing 146 people. Because the killings were completely for- preventable, um, the majority of the victims perished as a consequence of a disregarded safety features and closed doors within the manufacturing building. This incident is recognized as one of the most notorious tragedies in American industrial history. The incident drew worldwide attention to the dangerous conditions. It was a real sweatshop with young immigrants, women working at sewing machines in a confined environment. Almost all of the employees were adolescent females who didn't understand English and worked 12 hours a day every day. There were four elevators with access to the industrial levels, but only one was completely working, requiring workers to file down a long, narrow hallway to reach it. There were two stairwells leading down to the street, one of which was sealed from the outside to prevent thievery and the other of which was only open inward. The fire started below the level where the workers were, but started fast and ended even faster. It was all over in around 18 minutes. 49 employees perished after being burnt or smothered by smoke, 36 died in the elevator shaft, and 58 died after jumping to the pavements. The fire claimed the lives of 146 individuals, with two more dying later from their injuries. The city was ultimately forced to reform after the atrocity for which they were responsible. The Sullivan Hoey Fire Prevention Law was enacted in October of that year. Fires such as this were not even that uncommon, which really just shows us how bad it was. This was just a fire that people knew about and heard about worldwide. Mother actually knew one of the women that worked on that floor that died in the fire. She was an Irish immigrant, too, who she became very close with on the journey to America. My mother was not as sad as she was angry after the fire occurred. She was mad at America and at the treatment of the workers. She tried everything to change the way things were done. She helped in passing the fire prevention laws that we see today. What an er interesting person to say you know. It's so hard to believe fires like that could even happen and the death could have been so gruesome. So thank you for telling me about the count of your life. Please come again. We would love to hear you more anytime. Thank you so much for the invitation and I'm glad I could be of service. So now that we've talked about sweatshops and we've talked about Flannery, about her account and her life, I'm going to go back to the point of children working jobs and in factories. Child labor was actually a very popular thing to do. Child labor and the employment of children as workers and apprentices have been a part of human history for much of it, although it peaked during the Industrial Revolution. Children could be paid lower, were much less likely to form unions, and were able to do work in factories or mines that would be difficult for adults due to their tiny size. Um, A child is small, and they could fit in between machines and could do different things with their small hands. Um, Working children were unable to attend school, perpetuating a difficult-to-break cycle of poverty. The more children not being able to be educated, um, the more kids that also didn't have education, and so on and so forth. Child labor was a vital feature of the agricultural, agricultural and handicraft economies of the United States throughout the first half of the 1800s.
Children as young as four years old worked in industries for lengthy periods of time under very dangerous and hazardous situations. During most of the Industrial Revolution, child labor was still practiced until laws were introduced making it illegal. You may ask, what could a four to a 14-year-old child even be able to do? Well, working on factory machines, selling newspapers on street corners, breaking up coal in coal mines, and working as chimney sweeps were just some of the jobs available for children. Because children are tiny and you can readily squeeze between the equipment and into tiny areas, they are sometimes actually favored over adults. And, of course, as you would guess, for children, the pay was bad. Um, sometimes they were not even paid at all, but when they did earn money, it was often 10 to 20% of what an adult would receive for the same profession and the same job and same work done. In the United States, there were over 750 children under the age of 15 working in 1870. So now that we know some of the details, the facts, uh, we kind of want to dive in. So today we have another surprise guest coming to talk with us a little more today. This man is actually the son of a man who immigrated to America when he was only seven years old. He'll be here today to tell us more about what he knew about his father's move to America. Welcome to the show, Dylan Patterson. Hi, I'm so glad I could join you today considering I've had this information about my father and nobody's ever asked. I'm glad I can share with you the things my father had to do after he immigrated to America. Thank you. And first, let me ask, did your father live in a tenement and was his life hard? What did his family life look like? Good questions. Yes, my father told me gruesome stories about how over three families would have to sleep in one room together. He said that he never smelled good and rarely ever got to shower. He had a hard time where he lived. There wasn't electricity or good ventilation and he never slept well. He always said how hard his childhood was. He had three sisters that he said never stopped talking. <laughs> but he never complained about his family life to me. He would only ever comp compliment how hard his parents worked. His dad worked shelling, shelling oysters, and my father used to tell me he brought him to work. So when my dad was only seven, he had started working. Wow, that's a prime example of how young they started working back then. How crazy that he had to endure so much at such a young age. What happened when he started getting older and better at his job? Actually, when my father got to the age of 12, the place where they worked started laying people off. And instead of firing my father, they fired his dad. Children, as you know, and you mentioned, were easier to take advantage of, and you could pay them much less. But my, my dad always had small hands too, which is better for shelling oysters than an adult's hands. I'm so glad you touched on that point. That is exactly what we were talking about earlier in this podcast. Your information you have given us today has really helped us all get a better understanding of child labor and how real it really was. We all hear the facts, but sometimes don't see the suffering that many children and adults that immigrated had to go through. I know we could have probably talked for hours today, but I'm so happy you could join us to give us a perfect background of what immigrants, especially immigrant children, had to go through. There are so many things that happened that many people don't know about, and this is definitely one of those topics. I'm overjoyed you could give us some insight and tell us all about your father and what you knew about him. Thank you, and please come again. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Now that we've hit the 15-minute mark of this podcast will be back shortly after this little ad take i-25 to exit 235 then five miles west to the tree farm, farm. Do -do -do -do. 
Thank you for listening to that short ad. Now to end this podcast off, I would like to read a few primary sources that give us a real glimpse into what tenement sweatshops and child labor were really like. The first primary source we can really take a look at and dive into is How the Other Half Lives by Jacob Rees, the man we had talked about and mentioned earlier. Let me read you a section of it. Here it is. As business increased and the city grew with rapid strides, the necessities of the poor became the opportunity of their wealthy neighbors, and the stamp was set upon the old houses suddenly become valuable, which the best thought and effort of a later age has vainly struggled to efface. Their large rooms were partitioned into several smaller ones, without regard to light or ventilation, the rate of rent being lower in proportion to space or height from the street, and they soon became filled from cellar to garret with a class of tenantry living from hand to mouth, loose in morals, improvident in habits, degraded and squalid squalid as beggary itself. Rees truly hits the mark when he says this, and honestly, he is one of the only men of his time that sees the horrors and tries to speak out about it. The wealthy people used selfishness and money to try to not feel guilty for living in riches while others were suffering in small tenements. When Rees says, the necessities of the poor became the opportunity of their wealthier neighbors, that is truly a statement that should be remembered. It was 100% true. Because the poverty of immigrants and other lower-class citizens, rich citizens, benefited off of their need for houses and jobs. The saying, the rich get richer, is definitely in effect during this time. The second primary source we will look at dives us into the use of sweatshops. This source is a newspaper article from the day of the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire, and it says... Women and girl machine operators jumped from the 8th, ninth, and 10th floors in groups of 2s and 3s into life nets, and their bodies spun downward from the high windows of the building so close together that the few nets soon were broken, and the firemen and passerby who helped hold them were crushed to the pavement by the rain of falling bodies. So we talked about the fires, and we talked about the problems about sweatshops, But this newspaper article kind of proves it was the last straw. People, you know, wanted to be safe and wanted to be working somewhere safe, wanted their kids to be working somewhere safe, wanted their family members wanting to be safe. And sweatshops were not the type of place people could survive or thrive. You know, they were hazardous, dangerous jobs that no human being should be doing without safety regulations, which there weren't. The last primary source that talks about child labor is from the child labor bill in the hearings before the Committee on Labor decided what child labor was going to look like, what was allowed, what wasn't, um, all of the specifics of it. Um, So let me read you just a small section. Mr. Keating. Well, according to your pictures, you would demonstrate without any statement from you, using the pictures as evidence, that the working of children in the past in the South at so early an age as eight or nine years would no have a bad effect upon those children? Mr. Clark, no, sir, because of the fact before they came to the mills, they had worked on farms where they had worked longer and harder hours. 
You know, this source presents us with the idea that some saw the suffering of children. Actually, many saw the suffering of children, even their own, but many denied it out of their own selfish ambitions. So many people made so much money that they would pick money over the safety of children. This goes back to the point of the bosses and higher-up people in companies completely disregarding safety regulations because of the money that they were making. It was all purely out of selfish ambitions, and many people would have rather seen children work to death than give up the money that they were making. So, unfortunately, that is the end of the information in this podcast. Um, Today was a somewhat depressing topic, um, but one of the most important to learn about, in my opinion. So, thank you for listening, and please come back next week. I'm looking forward to talking about even more historical events and things that could change our perception of the ways we should live. Because history helps us to examine and comprehend how individuals and communities functioned in the past, I am beyond grateful and glad we can all educate each other and learn from the past. Thank you for all the support and goodbye.